Hi, everyone. Welcome today to the Palladium Podcast. Uh, today, I'm talking with Finn Depensier, who is in Kharkiv, Ukraine, uh, reporting on the ongoing conflict that broke out several days ago. Uh, Finn, I'm glad you could join us uh, under the circumstances. Yeah, it's quite a bizarre and terrifying situation. I mean, I arrived in Ukraine 48 hours before the war began. Um, I took a train to Kharkiv uh, after spending one night in Kiev. And surprisingly, or maybe ironically, going farther east has been the safer bet because the Russians have so far devoted most of their most of their assets towards taking Kiev, which they haven't done yet. And they haven't taken Kharkiv yet either. And the, and I just read a tweet from a European, uh, like an MEP, who said that uh, Putin convened a meeting with all of his oligarchs and was absolutely furious that the Ukrainians were putting up such a stiff resistance and he thought the war would be over in one to four days. Yeah, I mean, we keep hearing this, I, I guess just some context for our listeners. So Kharkiv is in the northeast of Ukraine. Uh, it's not far from the Russian border. It's also close to Belarus, where uh, I believe we now know one of the fronts came down from Belarus. This 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 is in the, the Russian-speaking region of Ukraine. Can you just tell us a little bit more about Kharkiv and, and maybe the, I guess, the temperament, the response that the local people have had there? The trains are still running, which is miraculous. Um, anyway, it's it's a university town, so there's a lot of international students, which is interesting. A lot of people from Nigeria trying to get on that train. They have a big engineering school. Uh, it's also an industrial center. It's It has about one and a half million people. So it's a very, very big city. Well, I, I remember you had said that the, you know, despite obvious fear at the, the the situation itself, there's been kind of a calm, especially in the center of the city. As you mentioned, the city hasn't yet been taken. Maybe just speak to that a little bit. Uh, it, it, it's kind of, it sounds a bit like a very, very surreal experience where there's all this activity going on, especially, you know, trying to follow updates from across the country. And yet your physical surroundings are, you know, strangely calm. They are strangely calm. Um, today, they weren't uh, they weren't as calm as um, the the rest of my time here. So today we we drove up towards the northern edge of the city and we encountered um, a whole bunch of destroyed Russian armor and and some dead Russian soldiers and uh, the Ukrainians um, digging in at that location. And I, I was taking a photo of this dead Russian soldier when uh, all the Ukrainians started running to their trenches. So we all sprinted over with them and, and hopped in the trench because they had just been sending outgoing artillery fire. So they were expecting um, a, re a, a return volley, so to speak, immediately after. Uh, and, and nothing came. So we just hopped in the car and, and, uh, and, and sped away and then went to the train station. But anyway, it's, yeah, I mean, the city center is safe because, because the Ukrainians... Um, they, they've put up a stiff resistance. I mean, the question is how much of it is uh, Russia hasn't devoted all their resources to this front yet because A, they are focused on Kiev or B, they would like to take a city within their sphere of influence, sort of like a city in the eastern part of Ukraine where the majority of people are ethnically Russian. They'd like to take this city as peacefully as they can. I, I, I'm really not sure whether it's the Ukrainians are... Uh, digging in or if it's the Russians haven't tried to push in as hard as they could yet. Now, I think it's a bit of both. The consensus analysis, if we're trying to read the mind of the Kremlin, is um, that uh, they want to see what happens in Kiev. Because if Kiev falls and the central government falls and 
they might be able to convince the Ukrainians here to put down their arms. I guess that's the thinking, but um, there's, there's, there's really no signs of that yet. Right. And so like one of the things there seems to be mixed reporting on is uh, the, the Russian side has been kind of saying that they're trying to do surgical strikes. Obviously, a number of cities have been, uh, I won't say peaceful, but, you know, people are kind of staying in their homes. Not everyone is fleeing the cities, uh, places like Odessa, for example. Um, on the other hand, you know, we're seeing a lot of these videos coming around of, of as you're seeing stiff resistance, you know, uh, obviously a lot of them, you're, you're having to be careful of like of fake news, I guess. Based on what you've seen in Kharkiv, do you sort of buy that uh, the Russians in, in particularly, you know, in the center and east of the country, as opposed to Kiev itself, that they seem to be trying to minimize destruction? Uh, or, or is this basically propaganda? I think that they probably are. If you look at what they've done in Kiev, they, they had launched a missile, a missile strike against the uh, against an apartment complex, and they've been they've been far more indiscriminate in Kiev, far far more indiscriminate with their strikes in Kiev than they have been in Kharkiv. Now there was a cluster, uh, there was a cluster munitions strike yesterday uh, on the outer on the outer part of the city in a civilian area, um, and I think they do want to scare uh, scare people off to, to to leave, and and eventually they will have to force their way in, and and you know, it, war is. Inevitably, you're going to kill civilians in war, and 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 for the Russian military leadership, um, the more that they try to be surgical and um, and avoid civilian casualties, the more they put their troops at danger, because because they're falling behind, uh, and, and Ukraine doesn't have to worry about being so precise because Ukraine isn't launching, as far as I know, strikes along the Russian border. I, I'm actually, I'm, I'm probably there must have been uh, there must have been some targets in the Rostov region, or I don't think it's spilled over into Belarus, but, you know, anyway, um, I, I think that the Russians are going to have to step up the pressure in the next 24 hours. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're hearing a lot of different things about, you know, who exactly the Russians were working with. There was this telegram message that came around purportedly from Igor Strelkov, the Russian officer, um, very well known for being involved in these kind of imperial wars and ambitions. Chechen soldiers have been sent into Ukraine as well which, you know, there seemed to be some doubt about, but now there's pictures coming out. Uh, we heard about separatist troops putting up a sort of nominal front in the east to occupy the Ukrainian army. I, I guess just based on where where you are and the, uh, I, I guess, more local chatter that you hear, are you seeing just regular Russian forces right now? Or has there been any presence or, or word about uh, others who are involved in this? I, I heard about the Chechens, and that scares the shit out of me. Because if I fall behind Russian lines, I do have I do have some faith that trained Russian soldiers will not try to kill me. I do not have that faith with the Chechens. I think I think the more I think the more interesting question is what equipment they're devoting, not like where the forces are coming from. Like a, a Washington Post reporter here just told me, like she got a a telegram report that um, there were airstrikes over. Over Kharkiv, and I haven't, um, and to the best of my knowledge, and this could absolutely be untrue, and, and and it's so hard to verify information in real time. I would really, I would really make sure that it's very clear to everybody listening and everybody who's maybe live tweeting about this to be very careful because it's it's hard to know. But anyway, she said that there's airstrikes over Kharkiv. We haven't heard of that yet. I mean, so far the only the only reports we've we've got have been have been of shellings and some M L R S attacks. 
which is a multi-launch rocket system. The Russian version of that is the Smirch. We, we heard that Russia was apparently ready to, to deploy thermobaric weapons in Kiev and, and wherever else thermobaric weapons use. We just saw um, some pictures of the Russians driving ICBMs through uh, Ukrainian territory. Yeah, that's so. So in, in Kharkiv itself, you're 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 seeing missiles used, but the the level of shelling that has been reported doesn't seem to be happening from what you're seeing. In Kharkiv, no, man. I mean, it's certainly on the outskirts of the city, but I can what what I can say definitively is the city center is safe and has been spared from shelling. There might have been one or two areas shelled. Don't quote me on it, but I've been it. I've, I've been probably I've traveled around like a you know, good five ten kilometer radius now, and there haven't been any attacks yet the, the we we did probably like i don't know eight or ten kilometers from here again i can't verify this that's where the um that's where the dead russians and, and destroyed armor was that we just checked out today but yeah i mean i do think that it's a mix of the ukrainians putting up a much stiffer defense than russia expected and russia wanting to uh, spare a si- spare a city in the east where a lot of people are Russian speaking and where they do think the that they might be able to govern somewhat, but uh, in a somewhat benevolent fashion. I mean, maybe they maybe that all hope is lost for that. I don't know. It's it seems difficult to say right in that uh, people are kind of like talking about how this invasion seems to be taking the Russians a long time, but invasions do take a long time, especially if you're trying to do it surgically. I've yeah, seen the references made to Poland in the war. Um, I mean, to, 2003, uh, the Iraq invasion, I believe, lasted about 26 days, and that was with hugely outsized air power. That was, you know, the might of the U.S. military machine going into Iraq, uh, and even that lasted 26 days. So, given that the Russians are already in Kiev, my, you know, my instinct is to say there's a lot of coping going on about how much we underestimated what they're doing. I guess we'll see what happens eventually. You're definitely right, though, that the Ukrainians are putting up stiff resistance. Um, I want to talk about that a little bit. We've been hearing, you know, these reports that they've been fairly effective um, on their air defense, you know, as as much as one can expect. They've been skillful in using the air defense systems, you know, the so-called manpad, the the surface-to-air missiles to try and defend against air attack. I'd be interested to see what you've seen from the Ukrainian side in Kharkiv. We just saw today uh, a standard post with uh, with some Ukrainian armor and some Ukrainian artillery, um, uh, Ukrainian artillery. I don't. I, I, I just frankly don't know what resources they have deployed in their front. I mean, I, I would. Oh well, I guess I did see some of the um, the anti tank the anti tank weapons that they were gifted recently from the United States and others. Uh, I, I have a picture of an MLAW system at that at that position, and um, and 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 a lot of military analysts have been. Kind of saying that uh, the, the 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 manned anti tank weapons might be Ukraine's only hope, um, and, and they are and they are an absolute nightmare for armor. We've been hearing these reports about conscriptions going on, particularly as people try to leave the country. Husbands and sons uh, taken out of vehicles. There was this uh, thread that went around by someone who had walked, I think, twenty hours to Poland, and uh, said he had seen uh, soldiers. Yeah, you know, coerce a woman's husband in and slap her when she resisted. So, uh, you know, at the point where you're putting Kalashnikovs in the hands of random untrained civilians, you're obviously in a pretty dire situation. 
But that being said, you know, these reports. So I'd be interested. Do, do you know if any activity like that is happening in Kharkiv? Have Has anyone talked about relatives that you're aware of being conscripted? Yeah, actually, I, I talked to a kid today. Like I was just wandering around the lobby of the train station, talking to people, uh, seeing where they're fleeing to, what their plan is. Um, and I talked to three university students here. Two girls were 17 and then a boy who was 18. And, uh, and and it just kind of dawned on me after he said that, that he is not going to be leaving the country. And then I asked him, well, do you have any military training? Have you shot a gun before? And yes, he had attended a military academy, which isn't like he was in the army, but he had that basic training and, and he said he would fight. Um, but they were still headed. Uh, they were still headed west regardless. Like, I don't know if he's trying to make it out. Of, like, I don't know what his plan is. They were they were going to go go for Kiev and... I don't know, man, like the um, the prospect of arriving into Kiev is very nerve wracking. I mean, we're thinking about when we eventually do get out of here, which which will likely be tomorrow. I mean, I want to haul ass west tomorrow morning, catch the first train. Um, and we're thinking we're going to uh, circumvent Kiev through Dnipro. That could be safer. Um, and then and then into Lviv and then probably south to Moldova or Romania because the Polish border is an absolute nightmare right now. I'm hearing that the Poles have mobilized a bunch of volunteer support, people handing out food and shelter and this kind of thing. But in terms of the people uh, around you who are planning on getting out of the country, is Poland still where most people are trying to head or, or are Romania, Moldova, these other countries on the agenda or even Russia for that matter? It's a good question. Um, so when I was at the train station, I asked this to many people, Are you when you get west, are you going to go through Poland, Moldova or Romania? And they're like, we have no fucking clue. We're just going to we're just going to show up and, and, and kind of play it by ear. And that's and that's really the appropriate course of action when the situation is so fluid and chaotic. Um, among amongst the journalists here, we can't uh, we we can't trick ourselves or deceive ourselves into thinking there's um, there, there's 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 an option that isn't risky. Like I'm inclined to I'm inclined to go west by train because Russia hasn't bombed the train tracks yet, nor like switched switched off the um, switched off the lines like cut the power. Um, they might end up cutting the power, but they haven't. Uh, they haven't bombed the train tracks yet, and I think that, uh, and I think that they would have done that on the first day if they were inclined to, uh, to prevent the transport of, of armor um, within Ukraine. But I think that they want that infrastructure when the war uh, is over. And furthermore, they don't want to kill. They don't want to kill any more civilians than than absolutely necessary, if you want to call it necessary. Um, but but. Yeah. And so and 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 I, and I think that being around a bunch of civilians is probably the safest bet. So being in one of these crowded trains and just because I know people that have that have done it. But the other option is um, to get up by bus or to get up by car. We were I mean, so the the NBC and Sky New teams, they they went southwest to Poltova. But we were told today that that's not a good option anymore. I think that they made it out. They might be back in Kiev by now I'm not, I'm not exactly sure the head of security for one of these news agencies I, I forget which was just like giving us some advice if you do decide to drive like you know risk of air attacks don't appear to be a convoy we'll certainly you know we, we need to find some duct tape and like um tape tv to the roof um but i still think the train is the 
the safest option. However, I mean, the, the nightmare scenario on the train is that they cut the power for whatever reason, like the train is incapacitated, like, it, like, like a, like in, in the middle of a fucking field or something. Like if I'm in between two major population centers and everybody has to get off this train, um, that is going to be a very sticky situation. I, yeah. So, so, but it, 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 it does sound like right now infrastructure is still running. Other critical infrastructure in Kharkiv, like hasn't been targeted. I can still talk to you on, on Wi-Fi right now. The water, as far as I know, isn't poisonous. We have electricity. The, the hotel has a damn good breakfast, um, which is, which is, which is quite bizarre. I mean, and the, 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 the hotel staff here really are quite unfazed and brave. Have you gotten any sense of how surprised people were? Because, you know, I think the consensus view up until a few days ago was that we could possibly expect Russian troop activity in the separatist regions and maybe in some of the eastern parts of Ukraine. Very few people uh, correctly predicted that there would be uh, activity throughout the country. Uh, interestingly, right, the American intelligence on this one seemed to actually be fairly correct. Uh, there's a very funny dynamic going on here where I think the the loss of trust that had gone on over, you know, d- numerous cycles of the stuff where uh, either information was false or it was used politically, that, that, that partisanship now made people not trust information even when it was correct. So I think that's definitely something we'll be talking more about. Uh, we tweeted a bit about it by the Yeah, I, I saw I saw the Twitter thread. I thought that was a great point. And I think that trust in the Pentagon leadership, it, as far as intelligence goes, is and just the Pentagon in general, the, the United States military is, is incredibly low, given given that we're still on the heels of the Afghanistan withdrawal. And, and you know, we thought this was going to be the, the, the foreign policy blunder of the decade. But I mean, Obviously, it's Ukraine now until the next thing. Yeah, I guess all the guys working in Afghanistan can breathe a little easier about their jobs. I, but I'd be interested to know what what the local level of surprise was, if you have any sense of that. Given that Kharkiv is in the east, do, do you get the sense that people had expected and planned for something happening? Or did this come as a shock? Uh, a lot of people were a lot of people were certainly shocked. I mean, I, I think that if you're I think that if you're living out here, you're going to constantly be running these scenarios through your head when when the entire world is telling you it's going to happen or it's not going to happen for the last few weeks but i didn't get great answers from people because they're they're very exasperated and desperate and they they just kind of wanted to get on that train and and, you know get out of the country so uh, what i want to do now i think you've gotten a pretty good survey of what's happening on the ground with you i want to take the conversation a little more top level now and uh, think about you know how we're thinking about Russia and Ukraine and putting this in the context of some work we've done previously. So you came out with a piece this week uh, <laughs> with everything going on about Kazakhstan. And you know just to recap our, our listeners, Kazakhstan experienced earlier this year some of the biggest upheaval uh, probably in its modern independent existence uh, you know in the post-soviet era. There was a, a rebellion effectively riots that happened especially in Almaty, which is the former capital riding across the country, government buildings attacked, and very, you know, a suspiciously sudden turn toward violence to the degree where a lot of theories were going around about intelligence being involved, Western, you know, foreign intelligence, the government claimed foreign intelligence. Later, it seemed like there was stuff happening within the regime, which we discussed in the piece. People can read that article on the website now. Uh, it's up there. Uh, the, the title is 
what happened in Kazakhstan's January rebellion. I, I want to draw on that a little bit because we saw Russian troops in Kazakhstan in the course of that operation. There was a CSTO mission. Russian troops are on the ground in Kazakhstan. They were there for about two weeks. So obviously Ukraine is taking center stage now, but Russia has clearly been willing to intervene in a very direct way in other parts of the post-Soviet sphere. Uh, I, I'd be interested to hear in the context of this broader work that you've done. You're also based in Armenia. How you're thinking at this point about the trajectory of Russia in the next couple of years? It's a great question. I mean, I've I've always been I've always been of the opinion that Russia cannot afford to be spread so thin as they are. Um, if you if you look at if you look at Russian military operations around the world, you see that um, they they end up just getting. Um, stuck in these frozen conflicts, Libya, Syria, Nagorno-Karabakh, um, Ukraine, which was a frozen conflict for a long time, not anymore, Georgia, and they end up just getting all their assets and attention and um, assets and attention tied down. Um, and with, 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 with an economy as precarious as theirs is, um, I've always felt that uh, I've always felt that the R- Russian foreign policy is, is far too ambitious. Um, in Kazakhstan, I think that the Russians did the right thing from their perspective. It was, it was, it was very prudent to not let, not let a country at the heart of their sphere of influence explode while they were dealing with uh, a potential Ukraine escalation, and, uh, and 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 that played out very very well for Russia. However, I mean, we did kind of expect, or some analysts made the prediction. I don't think we did that um, this event would draw Kazakhstan closer into Russia's sphere of influence. And Kazakhstan, especially um, under the leadership of its former president, um, Nursultan Nazarbayev, was able to foster good diplomatic relations between the West, Turkey, Russia, China, and all these different first and, and second degree powers are, are competing over Kazakhstan's resources. We expected that the Russians might have dragged Kazakhstan deeper into deeper into their sphere of influence, but there doesn't seem to be any material changes to that because material changes to the way that Kazakhstan has good diplomatic relations with other countries because Kazakhstan just denied Russia's request to insert its troops into the Ukrainian conflict. And Kazakhstan also just, they just denied that they would be uh, recognizing the independent republics of Donbass and Luhansk. This is a very interesting move. And, and just to be, you know, for context for listeners, President Tokayev, who is, has currently gained, he was already president, but in the aftermath of these rebellions, has purged the security state of a lot of his rivals, is very much now in control of the country. Uh, if people thought that he was going to be a Russian stooge, well, this current decision seems to be uh, removing doubt about that. And, you know, we, we had a little bit of discussion of why that was. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll sort of present my theory here. Um, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, Finn. But Putin did say several, I think it was 2014, in a speech uh, that he gave, he talked at that time about how Kazakhstan had never existed as a country and how it was a creation of Nazarbayev. Now, in, in the context of the more recent speech that preceded the current invasion, Putin said very similar things about Ukraine. Uh, and so I wonder to what degree 
people, local elites in the post-Soviet sphere just have the sense that if Russia doesn't think you're a real country, uh, it's kind of a matter of time before if, you know, if they get dissatisfied with you before they might just take some direct action, uh, especially with the the wave of imperial ambition that still exists there. So it's one one theory. I'd be interested to hear uh, what you think drove that kind of decision. Well, I, I mean, if you look at uh, Armenia, which is like you said, where I've been living for the last year, this is another place where Russia has a frozen conflict. Um, and it's Russia's inserted itself into a frozen conflict between two former Soviet republics. And Russia sold uh, weaponry to Azerbaijan. They sold weaponry to Armenia. And they weren't willing to take any sides in that conflict because they saw it as a quarreling between uh, two uh, brothers in, in the Soviet family. Um, but, but what that logic fails to recognize is that um, uh, Azerbaijan and, and especially Armenia are very, very distinctly um, their own nations. Azerbaijan is kind of a little piece of Iran that was given to Russia by, um, it, it, was, it was given to Russia uh, at, the, at the start of the 20th century. But I mean, Armenia is a very ancient country and, and I, don't, I don't see how Putin could ever apply that logic to Armenia. Um, and I think that, I mean, it's, it's all very alienating and Putin really does uh, risk turning Russia into, uh, into like a, a massive uh, North Korea and in, 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 in Eurasia. I mean, one of the precarious things about their conflict here is that they're running out of raw materials, supposedly. And, and, and this is all, you know, speculation. I don't know what to make of this, but um, a lot of their raw materials come from um, uh, Finland and, and, and Poland and Sweden. Um, and of course, they were um, selling gas to, to, to the European Union. And now the European Union is actually saying that Russia could be cut off from SWIFT in the next three days. Um, and I, I think that it's, I think that the, I mean, I never really bought this uh, assumption that Putin was trying to revive the Soviet Union. I didn't think his, or, or, or Russia's goals were that ambitious, but I, I do think that, uh, I do think that the Russian Federation was never able to um, properly accept its place as a second, uh, as as a secondary power after the fall of the Soviet Union, and f and and for the West's part, of course, um, they did push Russia up against the wall. Yeah, like my my sense here is that I tend to think people overestimate the material side of this equation. You know, there's the sense that so long as you 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 make people you squeeze people materially that they will at some point cave in. And I'm not talking here, obviously, about starvation measures. I'm talking about, you know, having a tough time buying tickets from certain plane companies. Uh, we're talking about having trouble dealing with certain banks. We're dealing about sanctions that affect ordinary people to a degree, but they a lot of them are targeted at wealthier elites. Now, that probably works for a small country, but I think people actually just underestimate how sovereign a large country with a lot of resources, even ones that are getting squeezed can be, uh, particularly when there's ideological conditioning to accept that kind of situation. I mean, look, let's 
let's look at Germany at the moment. Now, Germany is obviously not in, in any kind of similar situation to uh, Russia, but uh, Germany after World War II underwent uh, a long period of material destitution. And, uh, you know, based on what we're seeing right now out of that country, uh, the, the ideological conditioning on energy policy, right, uh, closing down nuclear plants on the basis of uh, a particular kind of green ideology, uh, people are, in fact, willing to, t- to, to take on material deprivation if the correct kind of leadership is given. So I, I'm fairly skeptical about this, the, the notion that you can entirely control this through you know, trying to impact material wealth. So that is interesting. I mean, here's here's what I would say. I mean, yet yeah, Russia does have um, Russia, like Iran, uh, have made themselves self sufficient because they know that they know they've been alienated from the international liberal order, if you will. Um, but so this is interesting that the sanctions have been mostly targeted at uh, Russian elites. However, the one thing that that would really uh, Cause a cause cause a horrible impact throughout the Russian economy would be shutting them out of SWIFT, and I guess we did just uh, hear from from MEPs that that was possible. Um, I think I think that the I think that Russia is just galvanizing too much of the world against them. Um, it's it's just it's it's making it, it's it's going to make matters so dire that they they might be forced to negotiate in this war. Well, but if that if that side against them doesn't include India or China, that's what half the world's population not galvanized against them. It's true. I mean, I, I really haven't done the analysis about how the switch from uh, how how Russia would support support the yuan, as they said, should they be shut off from the swift swift banking system. And that would be that would be just a monumental pivot. Um, and I don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens, I suppose. I'd be interested to hear. Uh, I, you're obviously someone who follows the Arme- you know, events in Armenia and the Armenian diaspora quite closely. Uh, you're, as you mentioned, you're based out of Yerevan. What has the response in Armenia to this been? Given that Azerbaijan, as far as I know, is a supporter of Ukraine for you know various reasons, uh, and Armenia, on the other hand, has a bit of this relationship of you know orthodox christian brother country what what has been happening there uh what has the response been there yeah well armenia is a very insular place and they're very uh paranoid and skeptical about uh so many foreign powers um because because the the armenian people have um have gone through uh you know horrible rule through the Russian empire and they've been treated by the Europeans and the Turks and et cetera, et cetera. But, and, and so they, they, it, it, the, the Armenians find it very hard to feel sympathetic, I think, for the Ukrainians, given that, um, Ukraine, um, is, is, is allied with the West. And, and I think the Armenians, the state of Armenia rather is, is just so threatened that, they can't feel they can't feel as sympathetic as they might. I mean, I, I have a very good friend who's Russian Armenian, and she's just devastated about this. Um, I think that uh, we have seen a lot of videos of the Turkish Bayraktars that um, that Ukraine acquired recently, being deployed in this conflict, and um, and and this is just kind of a, a moment of deja vu for Armenians who during the 2020 Nagorno-Karabakh war were watching these videos being 
released by the Azerbaijani Ministry of Defense daily. And, um, but I think that more importantly, uh, as far as the state of Armenia, how this changes the geopolitical landscape, um, the West is going to be, the West is looking for ways to, to punish Russia and already has quite severely in terms of sanctions. But, but I, I'm very curious to see what happens on some of the other uh, proxy war fronts where the West is, is locked, is at locked horns with Russia. Um, and, and I, and I have a pretty good understanding of the situation on the ground in Armenia. The Sunik province is very, very threatened. Sunik is, um, Sunik is, uh, is, is a territory which connects Ar Armenia to Iran, which also means it's Russia's only land border with Iran, but it's also the only thing standing in between Turkey and Azerbaijan, and then subsequently all the way past the Caspian Sea into Central Asia and the Turkic world. So it's kind of the last stand against this, uh, against this idea of, of pan-Turkism. Turkey really tries to emphasize the Turkic uh, ethnic brotherhood with their, uh, with their Central Asian uh, compatriots to try to uh, foster better relations there. And I think that anyway, so sorry, Finn. You're. I, I think you're moving around a bit, or something. I'm hearing kind of something moving against the microphone. Yeah. Sorry. I'll stay still. The point is, I th I th I think that the Sunik province could come under attack in the next uh, in, in the next few months. Uh, Azerbaijan has been trying to uh, to create a land bridge between uh, between between Nagorno Karabakh, which they now control, and Nakhchivan, which is this. Uh, Azerbaijani exclave uh, that's basically, you know, a, a, an extension of Turkey. Um, and with Russia distracted in Ukraine, I think that's a distinct possibility, especially given that Russian peacekeepers have um, repelled or, or stood in the way of numerous, uh, numerous uh, offensives in this province. I think that, I think that Russia probably hasn't pulled out as many resources as would be necessary for Azerbaijan to make that to to change the political calculation to 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 do a full scale invasion of Sunik. Yeah, so so where there, there's a situation basically, you know, just to take this this local situation and and reflect that into the bigger context again. Um, you know, obviously uh, this we're you know at, at palladium we're, we're always trying to figure out what is the the larger scale thing here uh there's a lot of day-to-day -day stuff that's going to be going on in ukraine for a while but uh i suspect that moscow is also looking at the long term so uh we'll try and do that here as well uh but i i think that you're you're definitely right like there's a shift in focus um i'd be interested also to see what happens with the turkish relationship we're seeing reports now uh, conflicting reports, actually, that Turkey has, you know, Ukraine is trying to lobby Turkey to shut down bridges um, to prevent Russian warships from getting through uh, into the Black Sea. There seem to be some rumors that they had agreed to this, but now they're uh, one apparently uh, a senior Turkish official is denying this. I mean, that would be absolutely uh, that would be absolutely catastrophic to, to global security. And, and, and the main reason why Ukraine is so important for Russia is because of those warm water ports on the Black Sea. So I don't know. I, I really hope that isn't true. <laughs> anyway, continue. Yeah, well, and, and, and I sort of bring it up because the the relationship with Turkey and Russia has obviously been very strange. That's true. In many yeah. days over the last few years. Um, 
they've been on separate sides of so many conflicts both in you know in near regions uh like syria but also further regions uh in in you know libya and other parts of africa for example the the you would think that these countries uh would have a much more openly hostile relationship and yet despite that there seems to be a kind of uh you know diplomatic relationship between the two um they they you know they they don't generally get into direct open conflict with each other even even just on the diplomatic front and yet as you're saying Finn Turkey also has ambitions in this region there are Turkish troops uh, and Turkish aligned factions in a number of countries in that region Uh, and you know I'm sure that Erdogan is looking at whether Putin gets away with the more direct kinds of annexation right now because Mm -hmm. Putin has the ire of the West Turkey is a NATO member but on the other hand, uh, you know, we've clearly seen this pattern that non non Western states uh, generally get more wiggle room on these things than Western ones do. So, to the extent that Turkey starts owning its position as a Eurasian or Central Asian state rather than a Western one, um, I, I think that's going to be interesting to look at. Yeah, I agree. I mean, so the, Erdogan made an interesting comment, or maybe it was some other Turkish government official that um, should Russia. Uh, attack Turkey, they will use uh, they'll use the S four hundred missile system. Which I mean, it's it's kind of uh, it's 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 a weird thing to say because if if Russia attacks Turkey, then that's that's an attack on a NATO ally. But um, and maybe I have to clarify that quote. But of course, yes, Turkey did purchase the uh, the S four hundred missile system, which was a very controversial move. Um, uh, and the Pentagon was furious about that. Um, but they just the, the, these two countries have to work together and they're also locked, uh, locked in bitter conflicts. And, and it just depends on which front you're looking at, um, because I don't, I don't think uh, I don't think the appropriate way to look at the relationship is one of simply enemies or friends. I think they cooperate on a lot of things quite closely and they and, and, and they're and they're bitterly at odds with other things because these are absolutely Goliath states. And it's and it's no simple matter and, and untangling the, the very, you know, the myriad ways in which they do business and, and, and are at odds with each other is no simple matter. But I think you're right about um, Erdogan looking at what Putin is doing in Ukraine and thinking about what he can get away with, because we now have a precedent. I mean, what war in Europe is now after World War Two, after the long peace, like this is no longer unprecedented. Um, and. What, I mean, what would happen now if if Turkey tried to invade Armenia? And it wouldn't come through Turkey. It would um, it would be an invasion by the Azeris, who are a vassal state of Turkey. But uh, like I said, the, the Western world is looking for ways to punish Russia. Yeah, and like if we're not going to help Ukraine, we're obviously not going to help Armenia, right? Yeah, no, that's kind of what it ends up being. Certainly, and um, so Armenia is supposed to be. Uh, it is a member of the CSTO alliance, which is a security relationship uh, it, that led by Russia in Central Asia. That is the alliance that was called into Kazakhstan, right? Uh, and and they and and unlike the unlike the NATO alliance, which so far has uh, been very uh, their their principles haven't been broken, namely that if you attack one of our countries, um, we are. Uh, that, that, that is an attack on all. Um, but there, there was a selective application of the CSTO, uh, of, of the, 
of the guidelines that would warrant a CSTO intervention because there's been innumerable attacks on what is indisputably um, Armenian territory for uh, well over a year now. And the CSTO never intervened. But after, after just like three days of fighting in Kazakhstan, the CSTO went in right away. And so um, the, you know, Azerbaijan certainly looking at that and seeing that Armenia has no friends. Um, and, and I think this, I think this is one of the potential, uh, fronts that the West or, you know, the West might, you know, decide to turn a blind eye to at least. Well, and that seems to be the, 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 in terms of precedence, just how wide the blind eye of the West is actually going to end up being seems pretty major. I mean, sure, we're getting, you know, we're, we're getting these sanctions packages, uh, and we're getting now the discussion about SWIFT, but at the end of the day, uh, if your near rival uh, decides to put troops on the ground in your country, it does not seem to be the case that you will ever really get Western troops to back you up. Uh, and you know, and, and that's not that's not even commenting on the the very dire state of a lot of the military organization and institutions and personnel in a lot of Western states. But it, it's it's it seems like if I had to take a guess at what comes out of this. For a number of years now, we've been able to have this view of international institutions whose existence negate national interests, and I think that this is basically no longer possible. And we've we've even seen the things. This has always continued to happen under the radar. I don't think people know this, but in Libya, for example, uh, France and Italy supported different sides in the civil war that is still ongoing there. Uh, so French backed and Italian backed forces were attacking each other, right? Um, two states in Europe had different interests in that region and they supported their interests directly and those interests were in conflict. And so we had proxy conflict between France and Italy. Now, obviously that was not gonna, that was not really going to end up translating into some kind of significant break between the two. They're both EU members, you know, they, they have significant trade with one another. But the fact that even European state capitals have distinct interests from one another, even after Brexit, I don't think that really hit home. I think after this invasion, it is going to hit home. And in a way, right, this is, the, I was saying to someone yesterday, the weird thing about this war is that it's in a way a normal war, um, which, you know, and, and which is not to say it's not a terrible war because war is terrible. But most wars that you and I, Finn, have grown up with have been very weird wars, right? It's like we're in in country, you know, we're 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 in Iraq, we're in Afghanistan for you know these like four D chess level ideological reasons, you know, because like factions no one knows anything about have five degrees of separation from interests. This is a war over territory and culture, and it has broken out into hard conflict. But that's in the course of history. That is what you would think most wars would be about. We have lived in a very strange period, right? And and kind of the strangeness is ending in this particular thing. Well, I think that the the term that military strategists and historians use is irregular versus irregular war. And what happened in Nagorno-Karabakh, what's happening in Ukraine, this is a regular war where you have two armies going head to head. Irregular wars where you have proxy conflicts and 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 insurgencies and and different you know different sides funding. Um, you know, different militias, etc. I mean, you mentioned ideological Fran magic. Yeah, you, you mentioned uh, Libya as this, uh, or, or you invoke the example of Libya as this quagmire where the West is kind of at odds with one another. I think, I mean, the the golden example here really is Syria, where you had you had Pentagon-backed rebels 
fighting CIA-backed rebels, and you have a situation where the the, the most important enemy of of Turkey right now, the Kurds, are being backed by the United States. And you know, this is this is a crazy story. I was at um, I was at the Cato Institute for a conference like two years ago, maybe when uh, when Turkey decided to invade northern Syria. And I was listening to uh, I was listening to a former United States Navy colonel give a speech. And in the middle of his speech, they invaded. And, and, and I just stood up and asked him the question, like, what what is you know, what are the uh, rules of engagement here? And he was like, I, I, I just don't know. I mean, it's, it's very tricky. And U, U.S. troops had to. Um, had to flee Turkish shelling and, and, and they came very close to firing back. And I'm sure they have fired back numerous times. We just don't know about, I mean, th- th- I, th- I think, I think there's a lot of, um, I think there's a lot of instances of direct collision between NATO and Russia and, um, and, and, and big primary powers that just get swept up under the rug because it's in the interest of both powers, uh, for these things not to be known about, especially in Syria. It's the quagmire of all quagmires. And, 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 you know, this easily could have been the conflict that ended the, the long piece. Um, there's just so many tripwires in the region. Um, and Ukraine, I mean, I guess there was a, there was a slow buildup of tension around Ukraine for, I don't know, I, I guess, the last, I mean, I remember sitting in a bar with Katerina Melifeva, who's a great journalist here in uh, here in Ukraine right now, she's in Mariupol, a city under very heavy attack. Anyway, I was sitting, uh, I was sitting in a bar in, in Yerevan with her back in December, and she said, "You know, uh, the Ukraine situation might kick off into a full war." I'm hearing reports of this, um, and it's 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 just so hard to believe because it's unprecedented. But we have a precedent now, and I think how states view uh, what they can get away with now is. I mean, who knows? My my sort of geopolitical realist friends will be nodding their heads here, um, you know, because it, it, one, one theory of politics is that this is kind of what it all boils down to is people make statements about their level of security and what they're willing to do to defend it. And at some point, people uh, test one another on those words. And, you know, I, I think that we we have gotten very used to spectacle uh, over the years, and I, I mean, I think this goes back further, right? Like even during the Cold War, uh, I, I was talking with someone recently about the the you know the one of the first uses of game theory in the West was this kind of trying to plot you know Russian decision making, well Soviet decision making in the light of U.S. decision making, and trying to guess you know four levels down, and you know uh, I know I'm going to do this with my nukes, but he knows I'm going to do that, so in fact I should be doing this, and it, it, you know there was a whole industry uh, that's still ongoing in some ways of using you know using this kind of you know so-called social scientific method to try and plot geopolitics and after all of that you know when the a lot of these archives were declassified after the cold war uh we realized that the soviets were actually using very conventional military doctrine they you know they, they were they were terrified in the 80s when under the reagan administration the rhetoric starts boiling up um, they they start getting scared. Oh man, is nuclear conflict actually a near thing? They they had actually focused on very conventional strategies about how to think about geopolitics, and I think we see that boil over now into uh, 
you know, all, all these theories about hybrid war and digital war and cyber war. And at the end of the day, it's tanks in the streets. And, you know, maybe this time there's like drones monitoring what the tanks are doing, but it is tanks in the streets. Um, there is basically one power here that thinks in terms of material advantage and in terms of military strategy and in terms of spheres of influence. And there is another power here that's us and our, you know, or, or, or our governments, let's say, which thinks in, in very much spectacle terms in terms of, you know, these these sort of very unenforceable treaties in terms of ideological magic. And it turns out that you can't actually govern uh, a civilization that way. So, yeah, we're, we're at a very strange point here. I guess as a final question, Finn, you know, you're a conflict journalist. We've talked here a little bit about what the map is might start looking like soon. I'd be interested to hear where you think you personally would go from here. Uh, you know, kind of regardless of what happens in Ukraine, we're going to see the ripple effects. Uh, what do you expect to see happening next? Interesting. Like what conflict I might uh, might be reporting on next? Yeah. What, or, or you know, what? Where? Where do you think uh, the flashpoints end up being from here? Oh, I think it's definitely Moldova, and I think that I might be hopping from one war right to the next because Moldova also has a breakaway Russian separatist state in Transnistria. And uh, and that's not in Moldova isn't protected by NATO. Romania is Poland is Moldova isn't uh, and, and the conflict could easily spill over there. So, you know, when I crisscross the country, I might end up back. Uh, I might back, you know, be out of the out of the frying out of the frying pan, so to speak. I mean, we are looking at going to Moldova because the Polish border is an absolute nightmare and we don't have clear reports about what's happening in Moldova right now. I mean, the, the border could be just as bad, but um. I'm interested in that. What else? Uh, I mean, everybody is obviously talking about a Taiwan situation. I have read, I read a great foreign policy piece a while back about um, how Pentagon officials are absolutely terrified about like the prospect of, of simultaneously dealing with Ukraine and Taiwan at the same time. Um, I don't think I'll be going to Taiwan. Uh, but but Moldova, I, I guess those two. Those are, those are, that's a good answer for now, I think. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's I think that's an interesting uh, place to leave it. Okay, well, Finn, I'm glad you could join us uh, from Kharkiv this morning. Uh, I guess this evening, your time. Uh, I know you're you're going to be moving soon, so good luck with the logistics. Uh, we're obviously going to be following you. Maybe just let people know where they can follow your updates on the situation on social media. Yeah, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Finn looked into it. That's Finn with one N. And um, I'm posting a lot of on the ground stuff from Ukraine. I want to I want to really make make it worthwhile that I'm here. So uh, yeah, follow me there. Awesome. Yeah. And we're definitely looking forward to uh, the piece a little bit down the road. Okay, well, I've been talking today with Palladium correspondent Finn Depensier. Uh, he's reporting from Kharkiv, Ukraine, and uh, hopefully we'll be getting out of Dodge soon. Thanks, everyone, for joining. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.